Good morning, church. What a mixed bag in that passage. There are plenty of things that we read it, we hear it, and we can get really excited about, but at the same time, there's other things that are really, really heavy. So what do we do with that? And so I have the pleasure of leading us through that. So um, my name is Dirk. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and um, it's a joy to teach through this with you today. This is my last sermon in this series, just, just keeping you on your toes. I'm not leaving, um, so let me pray and we can get going. Lord, we just come before you this morning and ask that you would provide, as we say, we welcome you here, Lord. We look to you, we seek your face. Would you lead us through your word? Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Bring satisfaction to our desires that only you and you alone can provide. Love you. We thank you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Yes, so before I really get into the passage, one thing, if you've been here um, at least a little while over the last year or so, Near the end of the sermon, I'll mention this, but we say, you know, if the Lord is really showing you something, maybe a word of encouragement to, to share with the body, um, or maybe uh, uh, something to uh, ask for healing over for healing, um, we would like for you to just pray on that and continue to ask the Lord what that might be um, over the course of today. Now, hopefully you can still pay attention to the sermon, but um, if, if you believe God's given you something, Daniel's going to filter that, and if so, we're going to give that at the end, and seek God for healing, seek God for encouragement. Like, that's a good thing. It's biblical. And so, I just wanted to speak into that. So, this passage for today, Isaiah 65, we're dealing with two groups of people. And this is really a common theme in Isaiah, if you've been with us throughout the series over the last year or so. And it's very similar to when I preached on chapter 8 last year, that you have these two uh, parallel groups that approach and treat the Lord in different ways. So you have, on one side, you have God's servants, those who have remained faithful. They're often called the remnant um, within the nation of Israel. They've been faithful. They've been seeking the face of God. They've tasted and they've seen that He's good. They follow His guidance. They listen to Him regardless of trial or suffering. Conversely, on the other side, then, you have those in the world and even within Israel who reject the Lord. As Emily read through this, we see a lot of their functions and practices that they really just follow their own devices. They follow whatever is in front of their faces, whatever they deem to be good for themselves. And verse 5 is really telling that they have created their own version of holiness. It's not that they're rejecting holiness. They're just adopting and creating their own. And what you see in that is that it's not just within a particular people group, but it's throughout the entire world how deeply sin has deafened and blinded people. I mean, an example from us in the last year, not just us in this church, but I think globally and specifically nationally. Last year gave us a lot of issues where we developed our own holiness. 
I want to pick on masks and vaccines. Ready? <laughs> now, I'm not saying this is the stance you need to take. What I'm saying is, depending upon who we listen to, what podcasts, news, whatever resources we took in, it helped adopt a certain stance to approach those issues and among many others. And that stance, whatever we adopted, provided for us a posture and how we uh, reacted to people and a lens through which we viewed people who acted differently. I want to ask you, and you can respond internally, in regards to masks and vaccines, and you can apply it to everything else, was that view that you adopted encouraging? Was it gracious? Did it give the benefit of the doubt? Or was it degrading and harsh? Now, I know myself in this, and I really have to fight it. I'm not saying you guys have all the issues with this and I'm pure and I'm clean, though. I have battled and continue to battle with this myself. But I bring this up because this is a small version of what God is addressing here. That is a microcosm of what God's saying here. He's like, it's not just about one issue. It's not just about one issue and one time period. It is about all of humanity, for all of history, there are those who have adopted their own holiness. And it is a stench in my nostrils. And, man, this is really telling as well. The way that the Lord puts this, he says that they do this in my face as I spread my hands to them. God is opening up his arms, his hands to them to receive if they would turn, but they're not. And this in and of itself is false worship. And within this false worship, you have two groups. You would have what could just be categorized as pagans. So other nations who have been following other gods for centuries and centuries, making their own sacrifices. And the Old Testament gets into this, like why God specifically says, do not sacrifice your children. Why? Because that was a common practice in the surrounding nations. Sitting in tombs and inquiring of the dead. It's not just a physical thing. They, it is a spiritual practice that they did where they would sit in tombs filled with dead bodies and inquire of the, the spirit world. Trying to circumvent the Lord. Trying to find their own wisdom. Trying to find their own knowledge. Eating unclean things like just rotten meat in broth. Like, does that sound great? Like, no, it's disgusting. But here's something I, I found out just as I was studying through this that, let's see, in verses 11 and 12. Those who forsake the Lord, who set a table for fortune and fill cups with, of mixed wine for destiny. He's not necessarily talking about wealth and purpose. Getting into the Hebrew here, fortune 
is actually a Syrian god who was worshipped widely in that area. Destiny is also another reference to another god, another lowercase g god. And so what Yahweh is saying here is they are literally setting a table for demons. That's how far it has gone in the world. That's how far it has gone in the darkness that is the world. That the people who haven't followed me, who haven't been walking with me, it's not like they're living this free life, free of any influence. Like, no, they are under the influence and seeking influence from the demonic. I mean, we see this locally here today, too. Um, it's really easy for you to just walk down College Street on the hill, and within five minutes, you could easily buy uh, crystals, tarot cards, any kind of New Age stuff. It's here. It's sought after. It's celebrated. A couple years ago, um, I think it was, yeah, two years ago now, there was literally a pagan festival across the street from my house. It's celebrated. And it's not just a, a, a practice. It is heavily and directly connected to the spiritual world. And I think the Lord is really clear in this passage and throughout Scripture that it's all connected to the, deno- the demonic and it brings nothing but bondage and brings nothing but brokenness and destruction. And I want to bring this up to you. like, If that has been a part of your life, a part of your family's life, um, or an influence or whatever upon your life, we want to pray for you this morning. Um, We're going to have the prayer team up here at the end of uh, our second worship set, and we want to pray for you because this is serious stuff. It heavily affects people. And Christians easily get targeted for this. Easily. So we want to pray for you if if that's you. But this false worship isn't just ooh, this pagan thing, but it's, it's also a snare for those within the community of the church. And so you have pagans, but then you also have compromisers. And what he's talking about here, it's not just, uh, ooh, Israel is this, um, this sturdy uh, beacon of faith, like everyone within Israel is just true. No, like there's people within the, the physical, geopolitical nation who actually compromise their faith with other things or setting, again, setting tables for demons. And they're still a part of church functions or what we would call church functions. And so for us, like, I think it's really easy for us to just point out, you know, the progressive churches in town or down the street, but we need to really sort through our, for ourselves what are the practices that we have assimilated into our own lives that are not of the Lord? What we call syncretism, trying to make this melting pot, this weird puzzle of pieces that don't really mat- match, but we just kind of hammer them together and make this weird thing. Like, it just doesn't work. I mean, explicitly, like, in, in my own life, within the first year of, of being a Christian, like, This tells you how little discipleship or discernment I had. Within the first year of being a Christian, I was with a group of people who used a Ouija board in a cemetery at night. No one else there was a Christian but me. But I got drawn into that. And I can 
fill you in on this story later, but when it was happening, it was targeting me. Heavily. It heavily affected me. But it's also subtle. And, I mean, this is really, really crucial for us, church. When we don't know Scripture, when we don't know God's Word, if we don't use it, we don't use God's voice, His promises to discern the voices in the culture, and we just readily accept everything that the world gives us, listening to our podcasts, reading our books, our music, we just readily accept it without any kind of filter. It's very subtle. And through that, it is very appealing. And the dangers of that is not that, man, your life is just going to be really stressful, but I've seen this in friends, that they're drawn away and ultimately reject the Lord. It's a serious thing, guys. I'll get more into this in a little bit, but what does the Lord say about them? Like, what will they receive? And so, 13 and 15 gets into this, that they ultimately will experience futility in this life. That they will be hungry, thirsty, dissatisfied, and put to shame. Because, you know, they're setting tables for little uh, lowercase g gods. Psalm 82 talks about how their gods will fail and mislead them, and ultimately they will be judged and die like men. There's no fulfillment, lasting, eternal fulfillment that they bring. But God himself says, I will make you die like men. And that these people, aside from the gods that they worship, they will cry out with a broken spirit because of the, of the futility. And, and then it really peaks in its climax here in, in the severity that the judgment to come in 6 through 7 the Lord says, I will not keep silent, but I will repay both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together because they made offerings on the mountains, on the places of worship, and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. It's God's wrath. It's really heavy, but this is God's justice towards evil. It's really hard to take in, but this is how he responds to evil, how he responds to injustice. Now, I want to pair us up with hope here, not just say, oh, we're condemning all these people outside of the church. I want to give us hope. I want to give us the right lens here because there's undeniable grimness here, undeniable, but it's sitting alongside unimaginable glories. Because God brings his servants, what he calls his people in the passage here, what he calls us, he brings his servants from darkness into light. That they, then in the passage, and us today, have not always been in the light. We have to remember who we once were. It's not that we were, we were born into the world and, oh, man, God has us in the light. This is the way we're always going to be. Like, no, we were the people setting the table. We were once 
uh, bowing the knee to other gods. And here he is saying this in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 11 through 14. Paul says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been transferred. He's delivered us into new life. And again, like in Ephesians 2, that whole chapter is about us being made alive by grace. We have been redeemed. By grace, we have been saved. That we are no longer children of wrath. No longer under the condemnation that God speaks about in chapter 65 of Isaiah. That we are now children of God, recipients of mercy, constantly under the waterfall of grace. Constantly. We have a new way of life now, as the Lord shows us, that now we have nothing to do with the demonic. Nothing to do with explicit practices anymore. Nothing to do with the subtleties, but having discernment. No longer having and embracing a a particular sin struggle that agrees with the demonic. But we are for and in the Lord. Looking at James 3. 3, 3.14-16. James says this, But if you have bitter Jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. What can we include within selfish ambition? everything under the sun that we seek. Joe Brinkman spoke at the men's advances uh, two weekends ago, and he, he focused on this passage, and I'm not going to re, re-preach it, but I'm, I want to include part of this in here. Is because if we are truly children of God, if we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, there is no hybrid faith. There's no place within the faith that God gives us and how he sustains us and gives us life that we are are just able to agree with both demons and God. Incompatible. Absolutely incompatible. You can't syncretize things of God and evil. And as Joe talked about two weeks ago, he said, there's no neutral ground. There's no categories of being on fire for the Lord, being in the kingdom of light, being explicitly worshiping demons, and having this weird area, amorphous gray area on the spectrum where we as Christians can live. That there's no way that we can be a church or individual believers who settle for a complacent faith. That's what this is. How we say, well... I'm just walking through life, you know, I could have more faith over this, or I could pray more, I I could love my spouse a little bit more, like, 
and we just accept that as a way to always live. Don't you want to thrive? Don't you want to thrive in the place that God has created you to be, the person who God created you to be? That we can't be in a place or live constantly in a place that accepts apathy as normal. Where does God say that? It's just normal to live in apathy. There's no flourishing, no motivation, no passion, no drive. Does God celebrate that? No, God has called for you to move out of darkness and into light, to, add, to be out of a place of accepting passivity as the normal, to be, a place, be out of a place of, accept, of accepting a lack of prayer as normal. Shouldn't be, these be things that we normally want to do and strive for? To live in holiness, to live as God's called us to live, to live in joy. To, for us to stop accepting a lack of joy and generosity as the normal. Does that sound like the life Jesus has called us to? To not have joy? To not have generosity, to have apathy, to live in depression, to live in anxiety. No. It sounds like darkness. It's just drawn up in a different way. We, we add some language to it to make it acceptable. We have to see it for what it is. That's not what God's called us to. Now, we can struggle with anxiety. We can struggle with apathy. We can struggle with depression. We can struggle with a lot of things. But it's different when we get to a place and we say, we just accept it for what it is. We accept that this is just the way to live, that this is what Jesus has given me. Like, no, Jesus has called you into a place of life. He's called you into green pastures where you will have solace, you will have satisfaction, and where you will walk in the light as sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. Because family, he has provided for us so much. He's provided us redemption through the blood of Jesus. He's provided us renewal and healing and guidance through his spirit. In Ephesians 1, man, don't have time, but Ephesians 1, like one of the longest sentences in scripture, Paul says that he has blessed us, he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where the Lord dwells. It's yours. That's what Jesus has given you. So why are we accepting apathy? Why are we accepting a lack of joy? That's why we fight. That's why we keep saying it because we need to be reminded of this family. What kind of church would this be if we fought out of apathy? If we sought people to pray for us? If we were humbled and vulnerable and opened ourselves up to what the Lord would do every morning when we gather, every day when we're with Him? Oh, man. And he says right here in in Isaiah 65, what his servants will receive. Okay, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, but he narrows it down here in 65 that, his, his servants will possess his land. We shall eat and drink. We shall rejoice. Sing for gladness of heart. We'll be given a new name. No longer named forsaken, but now my joy shall be in her. 
We'll be a new people with new potential and prospects. We will be satisfied in him with unimaginable glories. And that's not just a future thing, family. Why do you think Jesus sent the Spirit? Just to remind us of a couple things here and there? Like, no, to give us an experience, a real tangible experience of what it means to be His children, what it means to have the joy of the Lord. He refers to us as servants, and let's parse through that a little bit. What does it mean to be a servant? I think it's easy for us to have wrong ideas. So when God calls us servants, we're like, man, really? We can think of being a servant as, as one who's a slave. We can think of being a servant as a slave as far as being driven by fear. Like, do the task or else consequence. Physical death is on the line. Pain is on the line. No hope for a future. And this isn't just a hypothetical thing. Like, people are actually slaves still today. That's what the human trafficking 101 is, is there. It's to inform us about a real life of slavery experienced by millions of people today. But we can also experience maybe, probably more relevant to us as, as an employee to an employer. Also driven by fear. Um, driven by self-worth. How much value do you bring to your employer? And does that help you climb the ladder in order to gain favor and to have the power then to have your own servants? Is that what it's really motivated by? Now, I, I worked at Fairway for eight and a half years, and I would say <laughs> that was my definition of a servant. And I've had to reconfigure and understand what the Lord's saying here. But yet, so often driven by fear of what my manager would say. Now, eventually, I became, okay, friends with my manager back home, and, and it was good. Um, but driven by self-worth, I was surrounded by people who were just driven by self-worth and trying to gain more responsibility, trying to gain better pay, trying to gain more power in order that they would eventually have their own store and moving on up the ladder. But what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say about what it means to be a servant? Psalm 84.10, David says this, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, earlier in this, David's saying, how lovely is the dwelling place of God? This is different than being a slave. Like, where's the fear that David's talking about? There's no fear. Where's the pain that David's supposed to be experiencing? The death. It's not there. He says it's, it's a joy to even have a role of minimal function because it is in the dwelling place and presence of the Lord. And that we see intimacy. He goes on in Psalm 27, here in verse 4, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
This is different than an employee. I never felt that working at Fairway. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has even shopping there. Where's the need to climb up the ladder? Why have your own servants if you're in the presence of the Almighty? If you're before the throne of grace, why? <laughs> because you'll be satisfied. And I want to narrow in on this. That, but what we see in these Psalms is that we'll dwell with Him and in Psalm 27. And we will inquire. Inquire. It's inferring a dialogue that you're not just hanging out in, in the courtroom, that you're actually talking to the king without fear, without threat. You have a dialogue with him. And he's willing to hear you and speak to you. And I think this intimacy really gives us a deeper understanding because Jesus, I think, brings a perfect picture here. And what he tells the disciples that to be a servant is to be his friend. See, servant and friend aren't necessarily separate. They're all different facets of the same diamond. Because the Lord refers to us as children, as co-heirs, as the bride, as witnesses, disciples, and among others. They're all a part of the same diamond, different facets Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. John 15, 11 through 15. This is what he says to them right before he gets arrested and crucified. So this is really important. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you calls us friends. <laughs> See, this is different. This is different than 
the person in high school who you would tell everyone was your really close friend, or your, they were like the really popular person, had a lot of cred, and you would tell people like, yeah, we're really tight, we're good friends, but then they wouldn't claim you as a friend, like kind of embarrassing, like, oh, dang, that kind of fell through. I had a similar experience in, in middle school, and those of you younger millennials probably had this experience, like, you remember like Trapper Keepers? Like you could put like a bunch of folders, notebooks in there, and zip it up and like carry it off. So there was this trend in sixth grade where um, people would write on each other's trapper keepers like so and so was here, so and so was here. Like it's really stupid. Um, anyone else do that? In your, if you're in homeschool, probably didn't have many signatures, but but, <laughs> but in public school, I had a lot of people. But so what I did, you know. I would say sixth grade was a, a really big turning point for me because I, I came in and I realized I didn't have a lot of close friends, but then I made one of my closest friends in grade school in that same year. But what happened is I had a trapper keeper that was really empty. Like, the sides were really empty. And so what I did, I started writing names of people in my class, in my grade, that they were there at some point in time. I was like, great, it's filled, front and back. We're good to go. And then one day I got caught. I think a guy across the road from me is like, I didn't sign that. Who was a more popular kid? And then next to him, another popular kid was like, yeah, I didn't write that dude. (laughs) Got caught because I claimed some sort of affiliation with them, but they definitely did not claim me. I've moved on. But here's the thing. What I love about this passage in John is that Jesus calls us friends first. The one with all credibility, with all power, with all love, with all grace and mercy, who sits on the throne, he calls you friend. Because he is made known the riches and the promises of the kingdom. All that the Father showed him, he has revealed to us. He puts the signature on, and it's authentic. It's on your heart. He has claimed you. He has redeemed you, and he calls you friend. This has come up a few times in our church that we get like, that Jesus loves us, but I think when we really pry into this friendship to understand he likes you, right? Because we, we treat it differently with people, like our brothers and sisters in Christ are like, man, we love, we love them all, right? But there's some, you're like, okay, I, I don't really like you as much. You have a personality. It's kind of like, eh. Like, no, Jesus loves all of his children. Jesus loves all of the children of God. And he likes you. Now, don't get me wrong. He, he's calling you out of sin. He's redeemed you from that. But he's taking you as you are. All of your imperfections, all of your little mannerisms, all the little things that he actually created you with and says, I like that. You belong in the family of God. That's what he says about you. Now, you're also going to change. 
You're not going to be the same person you once were. But as you walk into friendship with Jesus, you begin to become more like Him. More gracious, more joyful. So, so playing off of that, how, how is this different from our day-to-day? Like if we're talking about friendship with Jesus, is this really different from our day-to-day? So to ask ourselves, to sort out amongst ourselves, are we more driven by obligation to God or by love? Are we driven more to be here this morning, to get in the Word, to pray, all that? Are we driven more by duty? Or are we driven by the passion that He has for us? How many masters do you serve? How many masters do you try to serve? Jesus was pretty explicit when He said, you can only serve one. As much as you may try to serve two or more, it's only going to come down to one at the root. So who will it be? What will it be? How well do you know your friend Jesus? How well do you know him? Does he just get that morning time, maybe 30 minutes, that morning time in the Word and prayer? Or does he get your whole day? There's a big difference. Does he just get that little phone call? Or does he get a life with him? Is he just treated as that weird Facebook friend you met at a party eight years ago and you periodically see, oh, they have a kid now? Or is he with you until the end of the age? Big difference. How does this really change everything? To know like Jesus calls you friend first and you are in a friendship with him. Among the layers of Savior, Lord, Redeemer, all that. What does it mean to be his friend? How does that change now? And for us to to really dream here, to really seek the Lord here, what can a deeper relationship with God look like? What can that look like for you? Greater intimacy, walking in his power, walking in the fruit of the Spirit, transformation, beauty, glory, all that that comes inherently when we are walking with him and hearing him and looking to him. Increase in our passion for mission, in our evangelism, in our generosity, in our taking of risks, in our acting in faith. It's kind of like the disciples after the Spirit came, no? Those who had walked with Jesus for three years, who were closest friends with him, You saw the difference what happened at Acts 2. It's the same thing for the rest of God's children. It's the same thing for the rest of Christ's disciples for the rest of time. That we would walk in those same things as well. He would grow us in those things as we walk with Him. And I want to pose this final question because I cannot bring specific application to every single one of you. This is something that you genuinely have to get with the Lord about today. What needs to change? What's in the way? 
And I'm not saying this as, man, you're not good enough. Like, okay, let's have the understanding. No, we're not that great. Jesus has given us a new identity and a new name. Put his spirit within us if we believe. Okay, he's qualified us. He's put us into the kingdom of light. Now, what do we do? We walk. But he's continually working on us, uprooting the little things that are obstacles in how we are in a friendship with him as well. So, we're going to give you some time here. We're going to respond. And so, invite the response teams up. I can't stress the importance with this enough. That to see more than just, hey, my life is going to be a little bit more joyful if I do this. No. Get with the Lord now and sort this stuff out. Because your life, your friends, your family, and this community depends upon it. We are dependent in a, in a communal sense on how others are in a friendship with Jesus. Because through that, your gifts come to life. You function more in the giftings that God has given you. You walk more in grace and joy. Like, don't we want more of that? Don't we want to experience more of that together? What would your family look like? What would your workplace look like? Man, people would ask, what is so different about you? It's because you're in a deep friendship with Jesus. You hear him. You talk to him. You're in a dialogue with the king. So, we're going to give you some time to pray. And the band's going to just play a little bit, just give you some space. And again, just pray, just seek the Lord. Ask, Lord, what is in the way? And whatever He's clear about with you, turn from it. May it be a place of, of confession and repentance to turn from those things, to submit those things to Jesus. And say, Jesus, just help me walk. Help me follow. I want a deeper friendship with you, but I feel stuck in this. Admit your dependence. Admit your neediness. He said he would take our burdens. So see this as practice. We're going to have communion up here at the tables as a way to remember our friend Jesus, who died for us so that we would be set free, that we would be called children of God. And so we come up, we take the bread, we dip it in the cup, and we remember his body broken, his blood shed, so that we would be set free, that we would have access to the throne of grace in every time. And then we're going to sing. We're going to continue to fight through singing the promises and truths of God. That through it, we would encourage one another. We would encourage one another by singing God's truths. And to remember that He loves you and likes you. And again, if, if, if God has just laid something on your heart that 
um, you're sorting through like, man, is this something I should share? Um, bring it to, to Daniel up here in the front. He would love to help sort that out with you. Um, yeah, we're just expecting that God would move powerfully in this moment. That this just wouldn't be a routine movement, a routine to just move through the motions, but to really seek Jesus right now in his grace and his gentleness. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you have brought us here to a place of seeing and knowing how you have delivered us from darkness and brought us into light. And you offer us the satisfaction of our souls and being able to see you face to face. Lord, what other response could we have to you calling us friend by saying, but other than saying thank you? You are our sweetest and deepest friend. And we withhold nothing from you, Lord. You see our thoughts and you still move toward us in grace. You see our lives on full display and you don't regret saving us. So Lord, would you reveal to us the things that are in the way, the things that just need to be uprooted and moved in order that we can be in a deeper friendship with you. We want our families, we want all of our lives to flourish, and it comes from this, growing in our friendship with you as your servants, as your children, as your disciples, as your witnesses, and as your co-heirs. We long for you, Jesus. Be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.